Dialectical and Historical Materialism by J. V. Stalin. Section 3. Historical Materialism. It now remains to elucidate the following question. What, from the viewpoint of historical materialism, is meant by the conditions of material life of society, which, in the final analysis, determine the physiognomy of society, its ideas, views, political institutions, etc.? What, after all, are these conditions of material life of society? What are their distinguishing features? There can be no doubt that the concept, conditions of material life of society, includes, first of all, nature which surrounds society, geographical environment, which is one of the indispensable and constant conditions of material life of society, and which, of course, influences the development of society. What role does geographical environment play in the development of society? Is geographical environment the chief force determining the physiognomy of society, the character of the social system of man, the transition from one system to another, or isn't it? Historical materialism answers this question in the negative. Geographical environment is unquestionably one of the constant and indispensable conditions of development of society, and, of course, influences the development of society, accelerates or retards its development. But its influence is not the determining influence inasmuch as the changes and development of society proceed at an incomparably faster rate than the changes and development of geographical environments. In the space of 3,000 years, three different social systems have been successively superseded in Europe, the primitive communal system, the slave system, and the feudal system. In the eastern part of Europe, in the USSR, even four social systems have superseded. Yet, during this period, geographical conditions in Europe have either not changed at all, or have changed so slightly that geography takes no note of them. And that is quite natural. Changes in geographical environment of any importance require millions of years, whereas a few hundred, or a couple of thousand years, are enough for even very important changes in the system of human society. It follows from this that geographical environment cannot be the chief cause, the determining cause of social development, for that which remains almost unchanged in the course of tens of thousands of years cannot be the chief cause of development of that which undergoes fundamental changes in the course of a few hundred years. Further, there can be no doubt that the concept of conditions of material life of society also includes growth of population, density of population of one degree or another, for people are an essential element of the conditions of material life of society, and without a definite minimum number of people, there can be no material life of society. Is growth of population the chief force that determines the character of the social system of man, or isn't it? Historical materialism answers this question, too, in the negative. Of course, growth of population does influence the development of society, does facilitate or retard the development of society, but it cannot be the chief force of development of society, and its influence on the development of society cannot be the determining influence because, by itself, growth of population does not furnish the clue to the question why a given social system is replaced precisely by such and such a new system and not by another, why the primitive communal system is succeeded precisely by the slave system, the slave system by the feudal system, and the feudal system by the bourgeois system, and not by some other. If growth of population were the determining force of social development, then a higher density of population would be bound to give rise to a correspondingly higher type of social system, but we do not find this to be the case. The density of population in China is four times as great as in the USA, yet the USA stands higher than China in the scale of social development. 
For in China, a semi-feudal system still prevails, whereas the USA has long ago reached the highest stage of development of capitalism. The density of population in Belgium is 19 times as great as in the USA and 26 times as great as in the USSR. Yet the USA stands higher than Belgium in the scale of social development. And as for the USSR, Belgium lags a whole historical epoch behind this country. For in Belgium, the capitalist system prevails, whereas the USSR has already done away with capitalism and has set up a socialist system. It follows from this that growth of population is not, and cannot be, the chief force of development of society, the force which determines the character of the social system, the physiognomy of society. A. What is the chief determinant force? What, then, is the chief force in the complex of conditions of material life of society which determines the physiognomy of society, the character of the social system, the development of society from one system to another? This force, historical materialism holds, is the method of procuring the means of life necessary for human existence, the mode of production of material values, food, clothing, footwear, houses, fuel, instruments of production, etc., which are indispensable for the life and development of society. In order to live, people must have food, clothing, footwear, shelter, fuel, etc. In order to have these material values, people must produce them. And in order to produce them, people must have the instruments of production with which food, clothing, footwear, shelter, fuel, etc. are produced. They must be able to produce these instruments and to use them. The instruments of production wherewith material values are produced, the people who operate the instruments of production and carry on the production of material values thanks to a certain production experience and labor skill, all these elements jointly constitute the productive forces of society. But the productive forces are only one aspect of production, only one aspect of the mode of production, an aspect that expresses the relation of men to the objects and forces of nature which they make use of for the production of material values. Another aspect of production, another aspect of the mode of production, is the relation of men to each other in the process of production. Men's relation of production. Men carry on a struggle against nature and utilize nature for the production of material values, not in isolation from each other, not as separate individuals, but in common, in groups, in societies. Production, therefore, is at all times and under all conditions social production. In the production of material values, men enter into mutual relations of one kind or another within production, into relations of production of one kind or another. These may be relations of cooperation and mutual help between people who are free from exploitation. They may be relations of domination and subordination. And lastly, they may be transitional from one form of relations of production to another. But whatever the character of the relations of production may be, always and in every system they constitute just as essential an element of production as the productive forces of society. In production, Marx says, men not only act on nature, but also on one another. They produce only by cooperating in a certain way and mutually exchanging their activities. In order to produce, they enter into definite connections and relations with one another, and only within these social connections and relations does their action on nature, does production, take place. Marx and Engels, Volume 5, page 429. Consequently, production, the mode of production, embraces both the productive forces of society and men's relation of production, and is thus the embodiment of their unity in the process of production of material values. B. The First Feature of Production 
The first feature of production is that it never stays at one point for a long time, and is always in a state of change and development, and that, furthermore, changes in the mode of production inevitably call forth changes in the whole social system, social ideas, political views, and political institutions. They call forth a reconstruction of the whole social and political order. At different stages of development, people make use of different modes of production, or, to put it more crudely, lead different manners of life. In the primitive commune, there is one mode of production. Under slavery, there is another mode of production. Under feudalism, a third mode of production, and so on. And, correspondingly, men's social system, the spiritual life of men, their views and political institutions also vary. Whatever is the mode of production of a society, such in the main is the society itself, its ideas and theories, its political views and institutions. Or, to put it more crudely, whatever is man's manner of life, such is his manner of thought. This means that the history of development of society is above all the history of the development of production, the history of the modes of production which succeed each other in the course of centuries, the history of the development of productive forces and of people's relations of production. Hence, the history of social development is, at the same time, the history of the producers of material values themselves, the history of the laboring masses, who are the chief force in the process of production, and who carry on the production of material values necessary for the existence of society. Hence, if historical science is to be a real science, it can no longer reduce the history of social development to the actions of kings and generals, to the actions of conquerors and subjugators of states, but must above all devote itself to the history of the producers of material values, the history of the laboring masses, the history of peoples. Hence, the clue to the study of the laws of history of society must not be sought in men's minds, in the views and ideas of society, but in the mode of production practiced by society in any given historical period. It must be sought in the economic life of society. Hence, the prime task of historical science is to study and disclose the laws of production, the laws of development of the productive forces, and of the relations of production, the laws of economic development of society. Hence, if the party of the proletariat is to be a real party, it must above all acquire a knowledge of the laws of development of production, of the laws of economic development of society. Hence, if it is not to err in policy, the party of the proletariat must both in drafting its program and in its practical activities proceed primarily from the laws of development of production, from the laws of economic development of society. C. The Second Feature of Production the second feature of production is that its changes and development always begin with changes and development of the productive forces, and in the first place, with changes and development of the instruments of production. Productive forces are therefore the most mobile and revolutionary element of productions. First, the productive forces of society change and develop, and then, depending on these changes and in conformity with them, men's relations of production, their economic relations, change. This, however, does not mean that the relations of production do not influence the development of the productive forces, and that the latter are not dependent on the former. While their development is dependent on the development of the productive forces, the relations of production, in their turn, react upon the development of the productive forces, accelerating or retarding it. In this connection, it should be noted that the relations of production cannot, for too long a time, lag behind and be in a state of contradiction to the growth of the productive forces, inasmuch as the productive forces 
can develop in full measure only when the relations of production correspond to the character, the state of the productive forces, and allow full scope for their development. Therefore, however much the relations of production may lag behind the development of the productive forces, they must sooner or later come into correspondence with, and actually do come into correspondence with, the level of development of the productive forces, the character of the productive forces. Otherwise, we would have a fundamental violation of the unity of the productive forces and the relations of production within the system of production, a disruption of production as a whole, a crisis of production, a destruction of productive forces. An instance in which the relations of production do not correspond to the character of the productive forces, conflict with them, is the economic crises in capitalist countries, where private capitalist ownership of the means of production is in glaring incongruity with the social character of the process of production, with the character of the productive forces. This results in economic crises, which lead to the destruction of productive forces. Furthermore, this incongruity itself constitutes the economic basis of social revolution, the purpose of which is to destroy the existing relations of production and to create new relations of production corresponding to the character of the productive forces. In contrast, an instance in which the relations of production completely correspond to the character of the productive forces is the socialist national economy of the USSR, where the social ownership of the means of production fully corresponds to the social character of the process of production, and where, because of this, economic crises and the destruction of productive forces are unknown. Consequently, the productive forces are not only the most mobile and revolutionary element in production, but are also the determining element in the development of production. Whatever are the productive forces, such must be the relations of production. While the state of the productive forces furnishes the answer to the question, with what instruments of production do men produce the material values they need? The state of the relations of production furnishes the answer to another question. Who owns the means of production? The land, forests, waters, mineral resources, raw materials, instruments of production, production premises, means of transportation and communication, etc. Who commands the means of production, whether the whole of society, or individual persons, groups, or classes which utilize them, for the exploitation of other persons, groups, or classes? Here is a rough picture of the development of productive forces from ancient times to our day. The transition from crude stone tools to the bow and arrow, and the accompanying transition from the life of hunters to the domestication of animals and primitive pasturage. The transition from stone tools to metal tools, the iron axe, the wooden plow fitted with an iron coulter, etc., with the corresponding transition to tillage and agriculture, a further improvement in metal tools for the working up of materials, the introduction of the blacksmith's bellows, the introduction of pottery, with the corresponding development of handicrafts, the separation of handicrafts from agriculture, the development of an independent handicraft industry, and, subsequently, of manufacture, the transition from handicraft tools to machines, and the transformation of handicraft and manufacture into machine industry, the transition to the machine system and the rise of modern large-scale machine industry, such is a general and far from complete picture of the development of the productive forces of society in the course of man's history. It will be clear that the development and improvement of the instruments of production was effected by men who were related to production, and not independently of men, and, consequently, the change and development of the instruments of production was accompanied by a change and development of men, as the most important element of the productive forces, by a change and development of their production experience, their labor skill, their ability to handle the instruments of production. In conformity with the change and development of the productive forces of society in the course of history, men's relations of production, their economic 
economic relations also changed and developed. Main Types of Relations of Production Five main types of relations of production are known to history. Primitive communal, slave, feudal, capitalist, and socialist. The basis of the relations of production under the primitive communal system is that the means of production are socially owned. This, in the main, corresponds to the character of the productive forces of that period. Stone tools, and later the bow and arrow, precluded the possibility of men individually combating the forces of nature and beasts of prey. In order to gather the fruits of the forest, to catch fish, to build some sort of habitation, men were obliged to work in common if they did not want to die of starvation, or fall victim to beasts of prey, or to neighboring societies. Labor in common led to the common ownership of the means of production, as well as the fruits of production. Here the conception of private ownership of the means of production did not yet exist, except for the personal ownership of certain implements of production, which were at the same time means of defense against beasts of prey. Here there was no exploitation, no classes. The basis of the relations of production under the slave system is that the slave owner owns the means of production. He also owns the worker in production. The slave whom he can sell, purchase, or kill as though he were an animal. Such relations of production in the main correspond to the state of the productive forces of that period. Instead of stone tools, men now have metal tools at their command. Instead of the wretched and primitive husbandry of the hunter, who knew neither pasturage nor tillage, there now appear pasturage, tillage, handicrafts, and a division of labor between these branches of production. There appears the possibility of the exchange of products between individuals and between societies, of the accumulation of wealth in the hands of a few, the actual accumulation of the means of production in the hands of a minority, and the possibility of subjugation of the majority by a minority, and the conversion of the majority into slaves. Here we no longer find the common and free labor of all members of society in the production process. Here there prevails the forced labor of slaves, who are exploited by the non-laboring slave owners. Here therefore there is no common ownership of the means of production or of the fruits of production. It is replaced by private ownership. Here the slave owner appears as the prime and principal property owner in the full sense of the term. Rich and poor, exploiters and exploited, people with full rights and people with no rights, and a fierce class struggle between them. Such is the picture of the slave system. The basis of the relations of production under the feudal system is that the feudal lord owns the means of production and does not fully own the worker in production, the serf, whom the feudal lord can no longer kill, but whom he can buy and sell. Alongside a feudal ownership, there exists individual ownership by the peasant and the handicraftsman of his implements of production and his private enterprise based on his personal labor. Such relations of production in the main correspond to a state of the productive forces of that period. Further improvements in the smelting and working of iron, the spread of the iron plow and the loom, the further development of agriculture, horticulture, viniculture, and dairying, the appearance of manufactories alongside the handicraft workshops, such are the characteristic features of the state of the productive forces. The new productive forces demand that the laborers shall display some kind of initiative in production and an inclination for work, an interest in work. The feudal lord therefore discards the slave as a laborer who has no interest in work and is entirely without initiative, and prefers to deal with the serf, who has his own husbandry, implements of production, and a certain interest in work essential for the cultivation of the land and for the payment in kind of a part of his harvest to the feudal lord. Here private ownership is further developed. Exploitation is nearly as severe as it was under slavery. It is only slightly mitigated. A class struggle between exploiters and exploited is the principal feature of the feudal system. 
The basis of the relations of production under the capitalist system is that the capitalist owns the means of production, but not the workers in production. The wage laborers, whom the capitalist can neither kill nor sell because they are personally free, but who are deprived of means of production and, in order to not die of hunger, are obliged to sell their labor power to the capitalist and to bear the yoke of exploitation. Alongside of capitalist property and the means of production, we find, at first, on a wide scale, private property of the peasants and handicraftsmen in the means of production. These peasants and handicraftsmen no longer being serfs, and their private property being based on personal labor. In place of the handicraft workshops and manufactories, there appear huge mills and factories equipped with machinery. In place of the manorial estates tilled by the primitive implements of production of the peasant, there now appear large capitalist farms run on scientific lines and supplied with agricultural machinery. The new productive forces require that the workers in production shall be better educated and more intelligent than the downtrodden and ignorant serfs, that they be able to understand machinery and operate it properly. Therefore, the capitalists prefer to deal with wage workers who are free from the bonds of serfdom and who are educated enough to be able properly to operate machinery. But having developed productive forces to a tremendous extent, capitalism has become enmeshed in contradictions, which it is unable to solve. By producing larger and larger quantities of commodities and reducing their prices, capitalism intensifies competition, ruins the mass of small and medium private owners, converts them into proletarians, and reduces their purchasing power, with the result that it becomes impossible to dispose of the commodities produced. On the other hand, by expanding production and concentrating millions of workers in huge mills and factories, capitalism lends the process of production a social character, and thus undermines its own foundation, inasmuch as the social character of the process of production demands the social ownership of the means of production. Yet the means of production remain private capitalist property, which is incompatible with the social character of the process of production. These irreconcilable contradictions between the character of the productive forces and the relations of production make themselves felt in periodical crises of overproduction when the capitalists, finding no effective demand for their goods owing to the ruin of the mass of the population which they themselves have brought about, are compelled to burn products, destroy manufactured goods, suspend production, and destroy productive forces at a time when millions of people are forced to suffer unemployment and starvation, not because there are not enough goods, but because there is an overproduction of goods. This means that the capitalist relations of production have ceased to correspond to the state of productive forces of society, and have come into irreconcilable contradiction with them. This means that capitalism is pregnant with revolution, whose mission it is to replace the existing capitalist ownership of the means of production by socialist ownership. This means that the main feature of the capitalist system is a most acute class struggle between the exploiters and the exploited. The basis of the relations of production under the socialist system, which so far has been established only in the USSR, is the social ownership of the means of production. Here there are no longer exploiters and exploited. The goods produced are distributed according to labor performed, on the principle, he who does not work, neither shall he eat. Here, the mutual relations of people in the process of production are marked by comradely cooperation and the socialist mutual assistance of workers who are free from exploitation. Here, the relations of production fully correspond to the state of productive forces, for the social character of the process of production is reinforced by the social ownership of the means of production. For the socialist production, for this reason, socialist production in the USSR knows no periodical crises of overproduction and their accompanying 
seeming absurdities. For this reason, the productive forces here develop at an accelerated pace, for the relations of production that correspond to them offer full scope for such development. Such is the picture of the development of men's relations of production in the course of human history. Such is the dependence of the development of the relations of production on the development of the productive forces of society, and, primarily, on the development of the instruments of production. The dependence by virtue of which the changes and development of the productive forces, sooner or later, lead to corresponding changes and development of the relations of production. Quote, the use and fabrication of instruments of labor, says Marx, although existing in the germ among certain species of animals, is specifically characteristic of the human labor process. And Franklin therefore defines man as a tool-making animal. Relics of bygone instruments of labor possess the same importance for the investigation of extinct economical forms of society, as do fossil bones for the determination of extinct species of animals. It is not the articles made, but how they are made, that enables us to distinguish different economical epochs. Instruments of labor not only supply a standard of the degree of development to which human labor has attained, but they are also indicators of the social conditions under which that labor is carried on. Quote, Marx, Capital, Volume 1, 1935, page 121. And further, quote, social relations are closely bound up with productive forces. In acquiring new productive forces, men change their mode of production, and in changing their mode of production, in changing their way of earning their living, they change all their social relations. The hand mill gives you society with the feudal lord, the steam mill society with the industrial capitalist, quote, Marx and Engels, volume 5, page 564, quote, there is a continual movement of growth in the productive forces, of destruction in social relations, of formation in ideas. The only immutable thing is the abstraction of movement, quote, I bid, page 364. Speaking of historical materialism as formulated in the Communist Manifesto, Engels says, Quote, economic production and the structure of society of every historical epoch necessarily arising therefrom constitute the foundation for the political and intellectual history of that epoch. Consequently, ever since the dissolution of the primeval communal ownership of land, all history has been a history of class struggles, of struggles between exploited and exploiting, between dominated and dominating classes at various stages of social development. This struggle, however, has now reached a stage where the exploited and oppressed classes, the proletariat, can no longer emancipate itself from the class which exploits and oppresses it, the bourgeoisie, without at the same time forever freeing the whole of society from exploitation, oppression, and class struggles. Quote Engels preface to the German edition of the Manifesto. D. The third feature of production. The third feature of production is that the rise of new productive forces and of the relations of production corresponding to them does not take place separately from the old system, after the disappearance of the old system, but within the old system. It takes place not as a result of the deliberate and conscious activity of man, but spontaneously, unconsciously, independently of the will of man. It takes place spontaneously and independently of the will of man for two reasons. Firstly, because men are not free to choose one mode of production or another, because as every new generation enters life, it finds productive forces and relations of production already existing as a result of the work of former generations, owing to which it is obliged at first to accept and adapt itself to everything it finds ready-made in the sphere of production in order to be able to produce material values. Secondly, because, when improving one instrument of production or another, one clement of the productive forces or another, men do not realize, do not understand, or stop to reflect 
what social results these improvements will lead to, but only think of their everyday interests, of lightening their labor, and of securing some direct and tangible advantage for themselves. When gradually and gropingly, certain members of primitive communal society passed from the use of stone tools to the use of iron tools, they of course did not know and did not stop to reflect what social results this innovation would lead to. They did not understand or realize that the change to metal tools meant a revolution in production, that it would, in the long run, lead to the slave system. They simply wanted to lighten their labor and secure an immediate and tangible advantage. Their conscious activity was confined within the narrow bounds of this everyday personal interest. When, in the period of the feudal system, the young bourgeoisie of Europe began to erect, alongside of the small guild workshops, large manufactories, and thus advanced the productive forces of society, it, of course, did not know and did not stop to reflect what social consequences this innovation would lead to. It did not realize or understand that this small innovation would lead to a regrouping of social forces, which was to end in a revolution both against the power of kings, whose favors it so highly valued, and against the nobility, to whose ranks its foremost representatives not infrequently aspired. It simply wanted to lower the cost of producing goods, to throw larger quantities of goods on the markets of Asia and of recently discovered America, and to make bigger profits. Its conscious activity was confined within the narrow bounds of this commonplace practical aim. When the Russian capitalists, in conjunction with foreign capitalists, energetically implanted modern large-scale machinery in Russia, while leaving Sardom intact and turning the peasants over to the tender mercies of the landlords, they of course did not know and did not stop to reflect what social consequences this extensive growth of productive forces would lead to. They did not realize or understand that this big leap in the realm of the productive forces of society would lead to a regrouping of social forces that would enable the proletariat to effect a union with the peasantry and to bring about a victorious socialist revolution. They simply wanted to expand industrial production to the limit, to gain control of the huge home market, to become monopolists, and to squeeze as much profit as possible out of the national economy. Their conscious activity did not extend beyond their commonplace, strictly practical interest. Accordingly, Marx says, quote, In the social production of their life, that is, in the production of the material values necessary to the life of men, men enter into definite relations that are indispensable and independent of their will, relations of production which correspond to a definite stage of development of their material productive forces. Quote, Marx, Selected Works, Volume 1, page 269. This, however, does not mean that changes in the relations of production and the transition from old relations of production to new relations of production proceed smoothly, without conflicts, without upheavals. On the contrary, such a transition usually takes place by means of the revolutionary overthrow of the old relations of production and the establishment of new relations of production. Up to a certain period, the development of the productive forces and the changes in the realm of the relations of production proceed spontaneously and independently of the will of men. But that is so only up to a certain moment, until the new and developing productive forces have reached a proper state of maturity. After the new productive forces have matured, the existing relations of production and their upholders, the ruling classes, become that insuperable obstacle which can only be removed by the conscious action of the new classes, by the forcible acts of these classes, by revolution. Here stands out, in bold relief, the tremendous role of new social ideas, of new political institutions, of a new political power, whose mission is to abolish by force the old relations of production. Out of the conflict between the new productive forces and the old relations of production, out of the new economic demands of society, there arise new social ideas. 
the new ideas organize and mobilize the masses. The masses become welded into a new political army, create a new revolutionary power, and make use of it to abolish by force the old system of relations of production, and to firmly establish the new system. Spontaneous process of development yields place to the conscious actions of men, peaceful development to violent upheaval, evolution to revolution. Quote, proletariat, says Marx, during its contest with the bourgeoisie is compelled by the force of circumstances to organize itself as a class. By means of a revolution, it makes itself the ruling class and, as such, sweeps away by force the old conditions of production. Quote, Manifesto of the Communist Party, 1938, page 52. And further, quote, The proletariat will use its political supremacy to wrest by degrees all capital from the bourgeoisie, to centralize all instruments of production in the hands of the state, i.e. of the proletariat organized as the ruling class, and to increase the total of productive forces as rapidly as possible, Ibid, page 50. Quote, Force is the midwife of every old society pregnant with a new one. Quote, Marx, Capital, Volume 1, 1955, page 603. Here is the formulation, a formulation of genius, of the essence of historical materialism given by Marx in 1859 in his historic preface to his infamous book, The Contribution to the Critique of Political Economy. Quote, In the social production of their life, men enter into definite relations that are indispensable and independent of their will. Relations of production which correspond to a definite stage of development of their material productive forces. The sum total of these relations of production constitutes the economic structure of society, the real foundation on which rises a legal and political superstructure, and to which correspond definite forms of social consciousness, the mode of production of material life conditions, the social, political, and intellectual life process in general. It is not the consciousness of men that determines their being, but, on the contrary, their social being that determines their consciousness. At a certain stage of their development, the material productive forces of society come in conflict with the existing relations of production, or what is but a legal expression for the same thing, with the property relations within which they have been at work hitherto. From forms of development of the productive forces, these relations turn into their fetters. Then begins an epoch of social revolution. With the change of the economic foundation, the entire immense superstructure is more or less rapidly transformed. In considering such transformations, a distinction should always be made between the material transformations of economic conditions of production, which can be determined within the precision of natural science, and the legal, political, religious, aesthetic, or philosophic, in short, ideological forms in which men become conscious of this conflict and fight it out. Just as our opinion of an individual is not based on what he thinks of himself, so can we not judge of such a period of transformation by its own consciousness. On the contrary, this consciousness must be explained rather from the contradictions of material life, from the existing conflict between the social productive forces and the relations of production. No social order ever perishes before all the productive forces for which there is room in it have developed, and new, higher relations of production never appear before the material conditions of their existence have matured in the womb of the old society itself. Therefore, mankind always sets itself only such tasks as it can solve. Since looking at the matter more closely, it will always be found that the task itself arises only when the material conditions for its solution already exist, or are at least in the process of formation. 
quote Marx's Selected Works, Volume 1, pages 269 to 270. Such is Marx's materialism as applied to social life, to the history of society. Such are the principal features of dialectical and historical materialism. End of Dialectical and Historical Materialism